So thankful for the word of God. I was mentioning on a truck talk today how um, AI uh, and uh, World Economic Forum are putting their heads together. Uh, and one of the things they're gonna do with AI, uh, World Econ they announced this yesterday, so they're gonna fix the Bible. <laughs> Did you guys see that? They're gonna rewrite the Bible correctly using AI. Um, <laughs> Boy, there's, there's some interesting end times implications to that. Um, but uh, we'll have to save that stuff for the next prophecy update. Um, but, uh, but how thankful I am for the anchor of God's word. You know, for us to be able to open a Bible that we know is legit. It's lasted for thousands of years of scrutiny, even though there are some who say, oh, the Bible's full of this, of contradictions or that or the other. But really, the reason why it's still the best-selling book of all time is because it's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. I love that I have a congregation I get to be a part of that is willing to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, giving you know place to the word of God, not just tacking on our favorite scriptures here or there, but saying, let's, let's look at the entire word of God. Paul said in Acts 20, I not shun to declare unto you the full counsel of God. So I think this is so important, uh, doing what we're doing here, going through the Bible, is super rewarding, giant blessing. And so glad you're with us. Mark chapter seven is where we left off. Uh, uh, last week on Sunday, we uh, looked at the first section and we talked about the, the vain traditions of men. Uh, these Pharisees were, you know, trying to find fault with Jesus um, and they were trying to sell their traditions as if it were the law. Like you gotta do these, these things, like the law, you know, laws of the elders, but they were just the traditions of men. And Jesus really calls them out. Um, and that was the first section of chapter seven. In fact, chapter seven uh, divides into several sections. Uh, and I'd like to kind of show you the first section is what we did on Sunday. And we're gonna call that the section called vain tradition, uh, verses one through 13. Uh, and Jesus reveals that um, he didn't need to keep those vain traditions. And it made them mad, just like I made some people mad last Sunday for talking about their traditions that they hold with, you know, with life and death grip, even though they're just traditions of men. Uh, we need to separate out the traditions of men versus the, the, the word of God. And that's what Jesus is doing. And it ticks them all off. Uh, interestingly enough. And we saw, you know, um, verses uh, one through eight, kind of the, the challenge between Jesus and the Pharisees. But then in verses nine through 13, Jesus gives an illustration of their stupid traditions. Uh, the one where they were using the word Corbin as a magical incantation to not let anybody else have their stuff, especially their parents. And so by claiming Corbin on all their things, they were, they were actually disrespecting their parents uh, and, you know, Jesus said, the Bible explicitly says, honor your father and mother. Uh, but you guys not only don't honor them, you dishonor them with this dumb rule of Corbin that you have made up uh, in your own traditions of men. So they fought, they forgot about the, the root law, um, honor your father and mother. And that's the problem with tradition is when it makes you go against the truth, when you start doing things that are contrary to what the Bible actually says, that's when it becomes a vain tradition. So that's the first condition Jesus is gonna to have to deal with here is vain tradition. But the second section where we pick up tonight, we're gonna to call this section heart condition. Jesus is gonna uh, talk about a heart condition uh, of the people, all people really. And that's verses 14 through 23. Um, so uh, vain traditions are an external behavior 
heart tradition or heart condition is an inward uh, issue. And Jesus is gonna um, deal with this. By the way, before we read this heart condition section, Jesus has already touched on the subject of your heart. Um, there, if you remember in verse six, if you back up to verse six, Jesus answered and said to them, well, if Isaiah prophesied unto you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, that's external, but their heart is far from me. It's almost like Jesus is gonna springboard off of that, that, that declaration that he made there. And he's gonna now define that and, and clarify what he meant by that quoting of Isaiah the prophet. Um, so uh, he, um, he speaks this out uh, to the children of Israel at that time, but this is for also all humanity. So let's take a look, verse 14, it says, um, and when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Now at this point, you're thinking, okay, what's this about? Well, that's what the disciples were saying. What in the world is he talking about? Um, it's almost like you could picture uh, the disciples hear him saying, they're like, mm, okay, amen, amen. And then, um, and then when they get into a quiet place, they're like, Jesus, what was that all about? We, we have no idea. In fact, as, as you look at verse 17, and when he was entered into the house from the people outside of the multitudes, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Like, what does that mean? And then Jesus says in verse 18, and he said unto them, are you so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that, Whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the drought, purging all meats. Brad, isn't this a little too biological for church? Uh, like this is a little lesson we should keep to the health room at, you know, well, maybe, whatever. But all that you say, Brad, I don't wanna, I don't wanna talk about that. Uh, well, um, Jesus makes a biological statement, but he's talking about the difference between the, the physical versus the spiritual. And, he, and he's marveling, don't you understand? I'm talking about that which defiles a person spiritually. Um, now, by the way, because Jesus is talking about things of the heart and the spirit, um, there's some people that actually misuse this scripture because Jesus is not talking about making you sick. You know, if you take uh, arsenic, poison, it's gonna defile you physically. It's not gonna defile you spiritually. Uh, by the way, this is a good uh, case. When people try to make a case uh, about being a vegan uh, or, you know, what you eat and how it can be sinful if you kill an animal and eat it or, or, or anything that you're eating or drinking, you, you, you know, you have to be careful not to make a spiritual case. You can make a biological case of why you should or shouldn't eat certain things, but um, you know, some things will make you sick, some things will make you fat, some things will make you uh, stoned or wasted. Uh, whatever, whatever you put in your body biologically, it will, there will be some you know, physical defilement if it's not a good, healthy thing. But Jesus is not talking about that. He's, that's why he's gonna correct them and say, it's, we're not talking about the belly, we're talking about what goes in and out of the heart, solically, spiritually, is what he's gonna talk about. The reason I kind of emphasize that is there's some people, I remember when I was growing up in the hippie days of Southern Oregon, some people like to use this passage. See, um, you can smoke weed. It's just an herb of the Lord. So is, so is poison oak. Uh, I don't, 
I don't see people smoking that. Uh, by the way, you know, it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, when you, when you, uh, you know, when I used to teach this, I used to talk about marijuana and, and smoking weed and all this stuff. And the easiest part was, well, it's illegal. <laughs> That's one, one, that was easy back in those days. Now, uh, it's a little harder to make that argument <laughs> uh, because it's legalized and every other drug for the most part in Oregon is, uh, is, is legal. Um, but um, you can also make other cases of why smoking weed is not a good thing to do. But it's not, you know, if a person smokes pot, are they gonna go to hell? No, they're just gonna have char in their lungs. Oh, Brett, they're not as bad as cigarettes. People make that case that if you smoke weed, that it's not as bad for you physically. But even that argument's getting thin. You know, um, you know smoking weed, uh, you know, the Bible talks about be sober. In fact, um, the, let me share with you this article. This is a NBC article that came out just last week. And they're, they're, it's not a shock if you've been around people that smoke weed uh, for long enough. I tell you, Pastor Brett, marijuana's <laughs> proven to not slow the mental faculties at all. Like I, I have buddies, man. Oh, they're just a shadow of what they once were. Um, but this article came out, um, you know, uh, just a week and a half ago. Marijuana linked to mental health risks in young adults. Growing evidence shows new research published this, this last month involving millions of people. It was a giant study worldwide over and over decades. Um, and it's adding worries to that heavy use of high potency, potency cannabis and legalization of recreational weed in many US states could exacerbate the nation's mental health crisis in young adults. There's a big sense of urgency, not just because more people are smoking marijuana, but because more people are using it in ways that are harmful with higher and higher concentration of THC. Dr. Nora Volkow, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, said um, in an interview. One of the uh, studies from researchers of Denmark in collaboration with the U.S. National Institutes of Health found evidence of an association between cannabis use disorder and schizophrenia. The finding was most uh, striking in young men ages 21 to 30, but was also seen in women of the same age. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting that, that um, there's a lot of people because it was legalized they just thought, oh, cool, uh, we, we can do whatever we want. It's just an herb of the Lord. But you gotta remember, you know, um, what does the Bible teach about drunkenness? You know, the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the spirit and not with wine. Uh, um, it says in Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, excess, but be filled with the spirit. Romans 13, 13 through 14 reminds us, let us walk honestly in the day, not in rioting or in drunkenness, uh, not in chambering or wantonness, not in strife or envying. The scriptures talk about keeping our mental fac faculties sharp. And, uh, and that's something we, sh we should not, you know, impair ourselves. Uh, and so, you know, some of you are mad at me for talking about this, Brett. You're, you're just a, a self-righteous, um, you know, pastor who doesn't smoke weed. Well, I'm definitely not self-righteous because I know I'm a sinner just as bad as anybody. I eat at McDonald's. Which one's worse, McDonald's smoking weed? Um, <laughs> Health-wise, they're both really, really bad. Uh, I'll, I'll admit that, uh, really bad. The only thing is I get less high on a, on a, on a quarter pounder <laughs> than the person who's smoking weed. Uh, and I need all the mental faculties I get. I, I have to argue I can think better with a quarter pounder in my hand. I, I'm just, I'm sharper, I'm more alert. Uh, I feel, 
that, what's that dopamine that kicks in? <laughs> but, uh, but I'm still not arguing that it's healthy. Uh, uh, but so some people say, well, bread, it's just like eating a hamburger. Well, it's not in the sense that your, your mental faculties uh, are impaired. It's so sad. Oregon is the litmus or the, the Petri dish of experimentation of drugs. And how, how's that drug thing that so many people are so excited about working? Um, you know, uh, City Journal, July 2022, this article, experiment in chaos is what they said. Uh, Oregon's decriminalization of drug possession is providing disaster, or proving disastrous. Um, on the issue of reducing addiction and overdoses, Oregon's decriminalization of drug use has been a tragic failure. Overdose deaths have risen by over 33% in 2021. Um, it's worse now than then. This is, only, this is back in 2021. The, the deaths of ODs are uh, even higher than that right now. As for the claim that the law, the law would provide a pathway to treatment for addicts, less than 1% of the people eligible for treatment under Measure 110, a paltry 136 people in the state of Oregon ended up getting help. 136, that's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of, so that was the big claim. Hey, let's not spend all this money on incarceration and law enforcement, let's spend it on helping these people. Uh, 136 ended up getting some help. That's, that's a tiny, tiny fraction. Paul uh, uh, Coelho, a physician with Salem Health Hospitals and Clinics said, without the threat of incarceration and the mandatory court programs that come with an arrest, addicts seldom have any interest in getting treatment. Duh. <laughs> Police in Portland report that all categories of crime jumped in reaction to Measure 110. Drug addicts need money. They got it by stealing items and reselling them. So property crimes, um, rose. Once a drug market opens up, drug dealers uh, move in to service uh, to service it. As a result, the streets of Portland are awash in guns and drugs, with drug dealers battling for turf. Gun violence increase. Um, little informal question: How many of you guys have, in the last couple of years, have been robbed on your property or in your car, your property, or something? Raise your hand. Anybody? That's, see, that's amazing, that's amazing. I'm gonna say uh, one third of the congregation here. Uh, Athey Creek's property, we've been robbed, that people have attempted to rob us probably 10 times in the last two years. Um, they stole some of our golf carts once. Uh, we had to remove the batteries so that they wouldn't steal them and stuff like that. Like, like, and, and, and it's the same people, we have them on camera, we know their faces, the police know who they are, and they're people that are just drug addicts who are getting their next hit. And so they have to find something to sell uh, to get their next, you know. And, and this is on this kind of crime is uh, skyrocketing in the state of Oregon. Uh, this article just goes on and on about the how horrible it is. But um, but you know, uh, people that say, oh, I can take drugs. It's just a, you know makes me feel better or whatever. Um, we just have to remember this. This is a tricky one spiritually because it's a physical thing. And you're saying, Brett, you're missing the point. Jesus is talking about eating and if, what, it's not what you eat in physically that defiles a man. It's what comes from the heart, what's in the heart. You're missing the whole point by talking about drugs. Here's the difference between the hamburger and the drugs. I believe drugs will actually affect your heart, your soul. Um, in fact, the Bible connects demonic evil with the word uh, that's associated with where we get our word pharmacy. The Greek word is pharmakia. Whenever the word pharmakia in the New Testament is used, it's talking about drugs, but it's also talking about demonic evil and demon ent entities. So we have to, with the drug issue, you have to, you know, kind of 1 Corinthians, you have to kind of 1 Corinthians 10, 23 it. And you have to ask, 
all things are lawful for me, especially in the state of Oregon. <laughs> but all things are not expedient. That's a fancy word for profitable. Not all things are, are uh, profitable. All things are lawful for me, but not all things uh, edify. So, so the idea of edify, making you better, building you up to be a better person. And so that's one of the tests that we have to do and uh, say, is this making me better? And you know, the, the studies are clear on that one. And the reason I say drugs and alcohol and stuff, that does affect your heart and your soul. Um, and so I'm just gonna kind of add that. In fact, First uh, Thessalonians 5, 6, 8, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunk are drunken in the night. But let us, Christians, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, a hope of salvation. Um, we live in a day where we need to be sober-minded. You know, you and I as Christians today, we need all the dendrites we can spare. Did you know if you drink a bunch of alcohol, every, every ounce of whiskey you drink, you destroy tens of thousands of dendrites in your brain. Um, but you say, Brett, there are billions of dendrites in my brain. Yeah, but from what I can tell, you need to keep all the dendrites you can <laughs> kind of keep, if you're asking me, and, and me too. I mean, we need our dendrites if you don't. If you don't. Anyway, all that to say, um, this, 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 is, um, this is what Jesus, he's, he's getting ready to jump into this topic of the heart condition of man. And I just wanna say that, you know, people have used this scripture to say, I can smoke weed and, and drink as much whiskey as I want because it's not defiling me. I'm not defiled by what I take in. And they use this as sort of their proof text, uh, which is incorrect actually, especially on things that you take in that affect your heart and your soul. Um, and if you don't know that it affects your heart and soul, ask somebody who loves you, hey, does my smoking weed affect my heart and my soul? Because they'll tell you yes, if they're being honest, unless they're weed smoking as well. Oh no, you're perfectly normal. Uh, they'll, they'll tell you. But anyway, um, uh, so the bigger problem here, more than just you know, the physical taking in of stuff, Jesus is saying the bigger problem here is the condition of the heart. You know, you're worried about, so what, what, what were they worried about? They were worried about eating steaks that were sacrificed to idols, like food that had been sacrificed on altars to pagans that were sold in the, in the shambles, the meat markets that sold the, the meat sacrificed to idols. And they were saying, you know, you can't eat this food, you can't eat that food. And they were being very legalistic and saying, oh, that man's spiritually defiled because he ate meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Jesus is just kind of blowing that whole thing out of the water. Um, he says, it's not about what, what you're taking in that defiles you. Um, he says there, the, the heart is the issue. And he explains that um, there in verse 20. And Jesus continued and he said, that which comes out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. Jesus says these things come from within, from, from the heart of man. Um, that which comes out of the man is, is what defiles man. So have you ever been just going along in your merry old way in a given day and you're a little shocked what came out of you? Maybe you're driving down the freeway and you're normally a fairly peace-loving, nice person, and you're just kind of driving along and then somebody says, and that middle finger uh, just pops up out of the middle of nowhere. And then you're kind of like, 
oh, I can't believe I did that. And I would say, believe it. Where did that come from? Your heart. It was there before you even did that or when you swore at that person that was driving in front of you. Or, you know, when you get kind of, you know, shockingly angry, you're like, oh, I'm never angry. Where did that come from? It came from you. Um, see, there's a, a human tendency to sort of say, oh, I don't know where that came from. It came from your heart. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times people try to ex- blame the externals and say, oh, that, that, uh, that came from, well, there's too much traffic in Portland and they need to widen the roads. Nope. Your heart is just desperately wicked and evil and you've got sin within you. Um, this, this is, you know, this is an important thing that Jesus is trying to tell us that, you know, you, you kind of start to know what's in your heart when you're upset or when something happens to you and then the real you sort of pops out. A lot of us are good at covering up the real us, which is probably a good thing. But once in a while, that real part of you comes out. It's been said Christians are like tea bags. All you need to do is put them in hot water to find out what flavor they are. And it's true. Um, you know, uh, marriages, you know, now that I'm married, I feel like my arguments happen more often and all that. Where did that come from? Before I was, when I was single, I was a really nice guy. Nope. You had that evil in you before you were married. It's just that uh, it's funny how certain things can bring out. And by the way, Paul warned about this when he said uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, he said, nevertheless, he said, uh, those that are married shall have trouble. He promised that. It's a promise you can name it and claim it. Um, and, and it can be challenging. But when you're challenged, um, that which comes out was already there in your heart. That's the, what Jesus is saying. Um, and we try to blame the externals when really um, it's the internals where the problem was. And I think Jeremiah nails this down, doesn't he? In Jeremiah 17, 9, when he says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is inspired by God when Jeremiah speaks these words. Um, and there's two con- conditions, desperately wicked um, and deceitful above all things. That's why I, I got to share it, uh, one of the graduations here locally uh, a few weeks back uh, and the seniors were all there graduating. And, I, and I, I mentioned them, you guys, whatever you do, don't follow your heart. <laughs> and, and I can see some of the parents like, oh, you know, don't, don't chase your dreams, don't follow your heart, um, but do what the Lord leads you to do. Go with God's plan. You know, because this whole follow your heart, it sounds so lovey-dovey and so follow your heart, uh, but it's stupid. It's the dumbest thing you'll ever do is follow your deceitful, desperately wicked heart. Um, that's what the Bible says. Um, what you need to do is follow Jesus and uh, it'll go contrary to your heart. To follow Jesus will make you do things that go against your deceitful, above all thing, and desperately wicked heart. Uh, it'll go against that. You won't, you won't be surprised when you realize, wow, Paul says, I find that there's nothing within me. There lies nothing good. No good thing lies within me. Um, he, he was a guy who started figuring out, wow, my heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now I've got some good news coming up here about the heart of a Christian that I think is kind of important, but um, your heart is wicked. So, um, you know, it's interesting. This, this can help you, by the way, with some of your struggles um, with sin. Um, by what Jesus is sharing with us about where this comes from, from within, it's what comes out of you that defiles you as a sinner. It's the things that come out of that heart that starts to reveal who you really are. And Jesus has given us a heads up, which kind of helps on other things. Like for example, let's say you struggle with lust or even pornography. A lot of times we try to fix the externals, which is not a bad idea, 
Um, you know, you, uh, some people have to get, you know, coveted eyes on their uh, internet and be accountable to other people. That's a good plan. We talk about that at Ironworks, how guys can get, you know, accountable buddies that they can, they can see what everybody's looking at on their phone and their laptop and their work computer and all that stuff. And I think that's a good practice, you know, to be accountable. And some people even have gone analog and got a, you know, a, basically a, you know, ladybug phone and a dumb phone, I guess, as they call it now, and, and got, got off of the internet. Some people have done that, and that's, that's good. But those, those are the externals. The problem is the sin of lust uh, comes from within. And we live in a culture that lustful things are everywhere you look. You could, you could cut all the connections uh, and try to still you know, be pure, but you'll still struggle with lust because it's something that comes from your heart. And so some of the things that need to happen there is a dealing with your heart from the inside out. Um, If your heart is right and if you're thinking correctly and and being led by the spirit, you'll be able to overcome lust and pornography with a heart change more than just a uh, analog change. You, You need that because no matter how hard you cut the anal, or you know, the, the other possible lustful things in this world, they're all around us at a crazy rampant level right now. So what do you do? You gotta check your heart. I'll, I'll talk about that here in a second. Same with adultery. Jesus, Jesus talked about adultery as an issue of the heart. And that's when Jesus said, you know, in Matthew 5, um, 27 through 28, he said, you have heard that it's been said of them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman with lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Um, that, that's where Jesus has started to get to this. It's already in there. Before you even do the deed, it's already in your heart. And not only that, same with murder. Uh, but I say to you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, which means fool, um, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool um, shall be in danger of hellfire. So Jesus ups the game on the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about um, the, that which comes from your heart. But you can just be angry in your heart towards someone, not even doing anything. You haven't killed them. You haven't punched them in the face. Um, all you've done is just been angry in your heart. And Jesus says, you're guilty of murder already. Um, and so this issue of the heart, by the way, when the Bible talks about your heart, um, this is, I think, kind of Christianity 101, and we have to be careful with Christianese because people are like, why do, why do Christians always have a heart, you know? Um, well, <clears throat> it's, it's often the word, <clears throat> you know, the psyche. It's, it's your soul, the inner part of you that thinks and feels. Um, the, there's two words that you should know. One is the Greek word, um, cardia, where we get our, you know, cardiovascular kind of type language. Um, and the Hebrew version of this is the word leb, and the, um, it, but it's explaining, it's, it's, it's actually words that are not just talking about your biological heart. The definition of lev in the Hebrew, cardia in the Greek, inner man, mind, will, understanding, soul, thinking, reflection, memory, inclination, resolution, determination of will, conscience, of moral character, seat of appetites as a seat of emotions and passions. Like when you say, you know, you have a gut feeling uh, or that's what they say, it's the seat of emotion. That's why the Bible sometimes says, you know, I love you with my bowels. You're like, yuck. (laughs) No, um, when Paul uses that language or the Bible, it's talking about that seat, the deepest seat of emotion comes from your gut. 
And, uh, and that's where they say, you know, I love you from the deepest seat of my heart is that kind of language. So the, as it turns out, this, this word cardia or leb, <clears throat> or often the word psyche, talking about the soul, the mind and emotions, the Bible claims to be the authority on that. Did you know that? Um, what's the greatest authority on the human soul or the human psyche? Is it Sigmund Freud? No, Sigmund Freud was a fraud and that's been proven. I can't believe they still use Freud, Freudian psychology because his, his, um, his findings were, well, misguided and, and even sort of cheated. There's some interesting things about Freud, but psychology, you gotta be careful because here's where you know, I, I would take issue. Um, and the Bible says, uh, the Lord knows the soul of man. He created the heart of man, the mind and the soul. And psychology says, no, we know the soul better than you Christians and you Bible thumpers. Um, and meanwhile, I would say, how are we doing with our souls in America? The, the more psychology has really ramped up since the old Freudian days and, and onward, is the psychology of America in a better place today or a much, much, much worse place today than it was you know, back in the old days? Um, I would argue that we are way far off uh, and we could talk about medicines and a bunch of crazy stuff with the serotonin levels. You know, uh, last year it was shown by doctors, serotonin was a total false, uh, um, you know, way of dealing with depression. And uh, that was the whole thing. We got to change the serotonin levels. And some people are still on serotonin altering drugs for their depression when science just, this is not a Christian thing. You can look this up. Uh, it's not hard to find, but they're saying, oops. Uh, and there's a lot of corruption with the drug companies where they were selling these serotonin altering type drugs, um, but not really helping people, uh, sometimes making matters worse to say the least. Um, as a Christian, can I just say, don't get sucked into the godless part of psychology. I'm not saying all psychology is bad and there's some good counselors. If, if you're a Bible uh, you know, centered a biblical counselor, then that's good and we support you. But if you're going strictly on just worldly psychology, I think that's gonna get you in a wrong direction. Uh, make sure to go to, to biblical counseling, not Freud the fraud. Um, but the Bible is the authority on the human soul. And, um, and when it comes to our hearts, is God willing to work on your heart? Is God willing to, to do some work or, or, or should, you, should you trust in the Lord with your heart? Or should you trust in psychology with your heart? And I would just say, be careful, Christians. I, I feel Christians have mindlessly often just gone to get help from anywhere but the Lord. But the Lord says, I can fix that. I'm the authority on the human soul, the lev, the heart. Um, throughout the scriptures, we, we're told that, can I show you a list? This is gonna be an, a list outside of my list, okay? So I got another list here that I wanna give you. What is the Lord willing to do uh, for your heart? Uh, I'm gonna give you a list or you can jot these down if you want. Number one, the Bible teaches that um, he will swap out my heart. Um, look what Ezekiel 36, 26 says, a new heart also will I give you um, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Um, the, apparently you and I were, were born hard-hearted and sinful, but the Lord says, I can do a heart transplant. I'll swap out your old stony heart for a heart of flesh. Oh, that's the need of every human person that's ever lived on the planet. You gotta have a heart change, a heart swap. Um, so that's the first thing the Lord says he'll do. He'll swap out your heart. Number two, he will change the desires of your hearts. Um, 
Uh, Psalm 37, the psalmist said, delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of your heart. Now there's a lot of people that read this verse and they say, oh, you mean if I delight in the Lord, he'll give me whatever I want? It's not what he's saying. If you delight in the Lord, your, your human desires will start to change to be more in line with him. You know, some people say, delight thyself in the Lord and he shall give you a Ferrari. That's not what it's saying. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll, he'll, he'll give you new desires that are well-guided uh, desires that are gonna be good for you. Uh, what, a, what an important part. In fact, Psalm 119 verse 36 says this, incline my heart unto thy testimonies, that's his word, and not to covetousness. Uh, it's funny because that's the Ferrari. That's, and the heart, the Lord says, I want you to, you know, the Psalm said, I want you to incline my heart to, to your word. Uh, so the Lord wants to change your heart's desires and he'll do that. Uh, that's, what he, that's what he promises. Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Number three, he will clean your dirty heart. We already established Jeremiah 17, nine, your heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked, who can know it? But the psalmist asked the Lord and said, oh, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He will clean your heart, which we need that. Oh, thank the Lord for that. Number four on the list, he is willing to strengthen your heart. Do you ever feel weakened in your soul? Your soul is just tired and weak and you just almost had it with people, with work, with school, with stuff. Uh, but I love what the psalmist said here in his prayer. He said, my flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and the portion, my portion forever. And the Lord says, I will, I will strengthen your heart. Um, when you need your soul strengthened, why not ask the Lord, Lord, will you strengthen my heart? Say what, say what you want, soul, strengthen my mind, my emotions, the, my feelings, whatever you're, you're putting there, Lord, would you give me strength? Because a lot of times we as people, we just feel weak. Um, that's this normal human condition. Number five on our list as we're ripping through this, he will enlarge, enlarge my heart. Um, uh, this is a good one. Uh, bread is cardiomegaly, uh, something you actually really want on a large heart. Is that a deadly condition? Yeah, biologically. But in, in figure of speech terms, uh, the idea is, um, you know, when somebody says, oh, he's such a big hearted guy. Uh, that's the way this Psalm uses it. I will run the way of thy, thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Um, to be a big hearted, benevolent, tender, kind hearted kind of person. Um, and that's something the Lord will help when thou, the Lord, enlarges your heart. Uh, we need more big hearted people in this world. Um, that's number five. Number six, he will heal my heart. Um, uh, I love this. You know, the Lord says in Psalm 147.3, through, again, through the psalmist, he heals the broken in heart and will bind up their wounds. I love Psalm 34.18. The Lord is near unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Um, have you been heartbroken over issues that have gone wrong in your life or hurts that people have caused or deaths in your you know, family or loved ones? Um, your heart can be broken, but the Lord says, I can heal that. I will heal your broken heart. Um, the Lord's good at that stuff. Number seven, he will establish my heart. Uh, it says there in Hebrews 13, nine, be not carried about with diverse strange doctrines. Is that a problem today? Diverse and strange doctrines? Uh, the emphasis on the word strange. 
Uh, we've gotten weirder and weirder and weirder. I told you about the AI Bible and the World Economic Forum. Speaking of weird doctrines, did you see the church in Germany last week uh, that was packed? It's the new AI church. Uh, AI pastor, uh, there's a screen with an AI person. It's not even a real person. It's just a, like a created person by AI who gave a sermon uh, created completely by AI and the place was packed. And there was a line of people outside the church just wanting to get in. Um, uh, again, that's signs of the times. But, um, but uh, as we get in these last days, I think more and more people are being carried about both diverse and strange doctrines. Um, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have uh, been occupied therein. So the idea of the establishing of one's heart with grace is the idea of we're saved by grace through faith and being established with solid doctrine and solid teaching. The Lord says, I, I can do that. I can establish your heart saved by grace. And that it's by grace you're saved, but it's also by grace you stand and you're established in the solid truth of grace. Um, if you have a heart condition, good news, the Lord is the great heart surgeon. He'll swap your heart out. He'll change your heart's desires, clean your heart from its filth. He'll strengthen your heart and enlarge your heart, heal your heart and establish your heart. Um, what a glorious truth that is. Well, uh, I digress. We need to go back to our original uh, outline. Um, there, there's the summary of that. And remember, by the way, you, if, you're, if I'm going too fast, no problem. If you go online and see these teachings later, these slides are available, uh, clickable, uh, if you wanna look at those uh, later and what have you. But uh, back to our, our original. The first, there's vain tradition, one through 13. Uh, second, we see the heart condition, verses 14 uh, through 23. Um, and Jesus says, all these evil things uh, come from within that defile the man. So we gotta check our hearts and have our heart condition. Uh, a good look at that will be good for you. Well, that brings us to the third section of this chapter. Uh, and this is the interesting situation. Verses 24 through 30. Uh, it says in verse 24, and from thence he, Jesus, arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Zidon and entered into an house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. Um, uh, it's like the Beatles now, you know, it's like wherever Jesus goes, the multitudes are chasing after him and wanting to hang out with him. And, and um, it's kind of shocking, you know, he wants to hide. Um, did Jesus ever sin? Good, see, you guys are getting quicker on that one. Um, yeah, Jesus never sinned. And, you know, it's funny how some people would almost say, oh, why isn't he caring about the multitudes? Like, I'm always amazed how you can't win for losing as a person or anybody in ministry. Um, but Jesus, obviously, he's wanting to get away and have a quiet private time. He's been thronged by the multitudes for a long time now. And, and it says here, um, and he would have had no man know that he was in the house. Um, now, this is interesting because you and I know that Jesus could magically disappear if he wanted to, right? He did that earlier in the story. Remember the people wanted to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth? Um, so Jesus could have done the whole, you know, just disappeared. But here he, he, he goes into the house to try to get away, but the multitudes still find him. Um, but I, I believe Jesus knowing all things, he knew he still had work to do and was willing to do it. Um, there's so much you can learn about Jesus and the way he rolled. You know, he, he wanted to get away, but he understood there was still some, some more to do. And there's a big deal that he's gonna face here. Um, by the way, another thing about this, did you notice it says Jesus went into the house, but he wanted nobody to know it. 
but everybody knew Jesus was in the house. Does, does your neighborhood know Jesus is in your house? Do you have a Jesus house? If people needed to find out more about Jesus, would they go, oh, go to that house over there? That's the house, that's the Jesus house. But I, uh, I love that, that it was noise throughout the town that, hey, Jesus is in that house. I pray that for my house, for your house, for Athey Creekers houses. Um, well, uh, verses 25 uh, through 30 continues here. It says, for a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Uh, remember all these people that followed Jesus' feet, it seems like they always are helped. Um, the Lord always ministers to the person who's fallen down to worship at his feet. Well, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, let the children first be filled for it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way, the devil has gone out of your daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. We covered this uh, Syrophoenician woman story in total detail in Matthew chapter 15. You remember that? Uh, and it's, it's a controversial thing because it seems like initially Jesus is disrespecting the Greek woman, the Syrophoenician woman. Why is he being so brutal to her? And this whole thing about the dogs and what have you. Um, you know, some people would say Jesus was just being a typical Jew, uh, hating the Gentiles and calling them dogs um, um, and stuff like that. Um, in fact, the Jews, do you remember how the, the, the Pharisees would pray in their t synagogues? They say, God, I thank thee that I am not, you know, a woman, a dog, or a Gentile. And they prayed that. That's the way they thought of these people. But, um, but the thing that we see here is, I, I don't believe Jesus. He was obviously not disrespecting her. Um, you see a little more of an endearment ultimately in the Matthew account, if you ask me. Um, Mark's account is, is kind of short and sweet, you know, tough to beat. Um, but, you know, if you kind of break it down, verse 26, she besought him that he would cast forth the devil, a demon, out of her daughter. And then when Jesus answers there in verse 27, you might think, what does that have to do with anything? You know, that the Jews, let the Jews be first filled. That's God's people. And then he says, for it's not meat to take the Jews' bread, that's, you know, uh, and cast it to the Gentiles. Now, now, what Jesus is doing here is he knew that he was gonna heal. Did you, do you think he knew that he was gonna heal the daughter? and cast out the demon, yes. So what was he trying to do here by telling her something about the Jews? You know, it's almost like Jesus saying, you know, tradition says we Jews don't really wanna have anything to do with you. I'm here for the Jews. Question, was Jesus only there for the Jews? No. Did Jesus know he was not only for the Jews? So why does he make this argument? Here's the answer, and I'm gonna give you the quick version of it. Uh, we did the longer version last time in Matthew. But he was drawing out from this woman an expression of faith that actually is quite beautiful. Um, Jesus is drawing out this faith in this woman to say, you know, um, you know, because Jesus says, you know, the Jews get this stuff first, you know, and, um, and we're not gonna cast this bread into the dogs. And now Jesus is using an endearing term of dog. We talked about this. There's other words you can use for more an offensive. The, G the Jews called Gentiles dogs, but it was a insulting word. But this word Jesus uses and what she's using is a puppy dog. <clears throat> like your little pet Fido or whatever. <clears throat> it's a nice term. It's not being brutal or mean there, but, um, but she says, yeah, but um, verse 28, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. 
Now, this is a great statement because um, this is the way all of us Gentiles should think. Brett, you, we're supposed to eat the crumbs from the Jews? Exactly. See, there's such an arrogance and pridefulness in much of the Gentile world against the Jews. Anti-Semitism is all over the world. Um, but you have to remember, and, and the church has been, a lot of the church has been the chiefest of sinners on this one, where um, replacement theology teaches that the church has replaced Israel. Uh, the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. And now we, uh, we church people, Christian Gentiles, we're the ones God actually loves. He doesn't love the Gentiles anymore. Horrible teaching. And I'll tell you why that's such, there's so many reasons. And I've talked about this at length in other studies, but you gotta remember, we are called the, 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 the vine or the branch that has been grafted in to the Jewish tree. There in Romans 9, 10, and 11, there's a, there's a grafting in, right? Do you remember how we're called the grafted in branch? Um, but if you're a church that's saying, God's done with the Jews, and it's all about the Gentiles, question, what did you just do? You chopped down the tree. You chop down the tree when you say that God's done with the Jews. And what does the branch do when the tree's chopped down? It dies. If God says, I'm done with the Jews, then question, why isn't he done with you and me? In fact, you and I should be totally horrified. If you're a replacement theology person, you should be real scared right about now because the Jews failed and they, they sinned against God. But what happens when you fail and you have, and you sin against God and you have? What makes Gentiles think we're gonna be special more than the Jews? The answer, we're not. You see, um, we Gentiles, the Gentile church should be very thankful to the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus came from the Jews. Without the Jews, Jesus would not have come. That's why Satan through Haman and others throughout history, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes, historically, they tried to off the Jews. Satan has always been anti-Jew, even to this day. But um, isn't it interesting that we Gentiles, in the promise to Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed by you, Abraham, and your seed, how are we blessed by the Jews? Oh, we could tell you so many ways, scientifically, medically, artistically, inventions that have been made by the Jews. The world's been blessed, but more than any of that, the Jews are the ones who brought the savior of the world, the Messiah, Jesus. I hope you as Athe Greekers don't think of Christianity as replacing Judaism. What, what we, I think, as Gentile Christians, we need to humbly be thankful that we are the continuation of God's plan from the Jewish people through uh, God's plan to all the world, to save the whole world through the Jewish people. Christianity is not a replacement of Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Um, and this is really important. There's no other name by which men can be saved than that of Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, um, Interesting, this, this woman by saying, yeah, but we Gentiles even can eat of the crumbs of the Jews. Um, that, that actually is probably a better worldview than, than what a lot of people today have. Um, we, we get to be recipients of blessing because of what God has done through the Jewish people. And we should be thankful for that. Um, all that to say, we have this interesting situation where uh, the Lord restores this woman. Again, I'd refer you to Matthew chapter 15 if you want a deeper uh, discussion on the Syrophoenician woman. And we even referred to Mark chapter seven and did kind of a full meal deal on that. So that's the interesting situation. Number four, now we have glorious restoration. And that's verses 31 through 37 as we continue. It says there in verse 31, and again, 
um, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came into the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. Now remember Decapolis, 10 cities. Uh, the Decapolis, uh, uh, there was 10 big cities that were part of a 10 city confederation kind of thing. And, and Jesus went all over those cities of the Decapolis. That's part, part of the Bible. You don't always know exactly what happened there, but Jesus did go to those places. One of the Decapolis cities I like to bring our tour groups to Israel uh, to is a, a city called, uh, some people say Jarish, uh, other people say Jarash, um, but it's in the country of Jordan. Most tourists don't go there because most tourists don't go to the country of Jordan. Much of the Bible happened in Jordan though, uh, even though it's not called the, you know, the Bible land, Israel gets that, but, but a lot of the Bible happened in the country of Jordan. But the reason I like to bring people to Jarish is it's one of the Decapolis cities that Jesus probably went and, went and walked through. But what makes it really interesting, it was also a twin city of Jerusalem. And this city of Jerash was destroyed in an earthquake and it just crumbled and uh, you know, fell apart uh, somewhere around the, the first century. And uh, here's the cool part, they didn't build it up again. They just kind of let it crumble and cease to exist. You say, that's not cool. No, it is, I'll tell you why. Because basically in the last 40 years, they've been archeologically digging the city up. It's huge. And as they tilt everything, all they have to do is all these pillars and everything, just tilt them back up. And you, you have basically Jerusalem the way it looked in the first century during the time of Christ. It's almost like a model city of Jerusalem, even though it is, was a real city and, it, and Jesus very likely walked through that city. Um, but it's really cool to bring groups there to say, see, this is the Roman Cardo that went right down the center of, the, today in Jerusalem, the Roman Cardo is underground. You have to walk under layers of archeological digs. Um, but in Jairus, you can see it kind of as it was in the first century. So it's kind of cool. But do you ever wonder what Jesus did in all those Decapolis cities as the, the gospels record him going to these places? Um, so now he's getting back to the Galilee region after being by Tyre and Zidon and the Decapolis. Verse 32, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears. And he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said unto him, Epaphtha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. And he, Jesus, charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much more a great deal. They published it and were beyond measure astonished saying, he hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Here in this glorious restoration of the deaf and dumb, uh, we see uh, Jesus ministering very specifically. It's interesting that they ask him to do something. They say, Jesus, would you take your hand and touch this guy? Like, isn't it interesting that they, that G, they ask Jesus to do something? Like, um, they, they almost like giving him, you know, would you please reach out your hand and do this? Jesus could have thought him uh, healed. He could have said in his mind, be healed, and ding, he could have been healed. But it is interesting that Jesus does do things that they ask him to do. Hey, <clears throat> reach out your hand and touch him. He actually even goes the extra mile. In fact, as I look at this, um, I think there's things to learn and how Jesus ministered to this deaf guy who had an impediment of his speech. Um, and there, again, going off of my other outline, let's, let's do another list. Are you guys into another list? 
okay, here we go. Um, here's how Jesus ministered. The first thing we notice is the personal attention that was given to this guy. Um, and I love that he, he, it says here in verse 33, he takes him aside from the multitude. Um, Jesus wants to focus in and give him personal attention. I wonder if there's some people that come to you that are in the multitude of where you work or in your school or in your neighborhood, but there might be just a need for you to give them personal time, personal attention. Jesus was into that. He pulls this guy out of the crowd. They're all saying, hey, put your hand on him like this and heal him. And Jesus says, you guys all, I got this. And he pulls him aside. Are there people that you should pull aside and give personal attention? You know, I love that Jesus did that, a one-on-one -on -one ministering. Um, and and uh, how thankful I am, by the way, for uh, a congregation that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these people that are ministering one to another. Um, I hear great stories, not only from our volunteers and our staff, uh, we get that all the time of just a huge group of people that are just ministering and serving and leading small Bible studies and just awesome, awesome things. Um, but I'm so thankful that there's some of you that kind of take it upon yourselves to say, man, I'm just gonna look for someone who's hurting and then give them sort of a personal um, attention. And how needed that is in a giant church. When, when you have a church of over 10,000 people, you gotta kind of uh, hope that, that some of the bases are being covered, not just by the staff and volunteers. It's, it's like shooting elephants with a BB gun. You, you, you need help. And I love that some of you are saying, man, we're gonna look for opportunities to minister. Um, and I love that. Um, and remember, we talked about that last week. You have not chosen me, John 15, 16, but I have chosen you and have ordained you. Uh, and I've mentioned you're all ordained ministers. That's, that's pretty cool. Well, uh, personal attention. Number two on this, how Jesus ministered, notice the intimate connection. He, did, he not only had the personal attention, but um, it, it, it's kind of, some of you are probably like, this is kind of weird. He puts his fingers in his ears and then touched his tongue after he spit. What's going on? Well, I would ask you this question. Um, like, like as somewhat of a germaphobe myself, um, would you, if you had the power to heal this guy's ears without touching them, would you? Yeah. I might touch him on the shoulder, <laughs> but I wouldn't be like sticking in the earwax. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I'd be like, no, I'm just gonna heal you externally. Uh, I got this. But Jesus sticks his fingers in his ear. Uh, that, what's going on? I guess I kind of think, boy, are you willing to get your hands dirty in ministry? Um, I think there's people that are wanting to keep their lives a little too pristine and they're not willing to get into it and, and touch people that are maybe uh, the, the unclean or whatever. Um, and I think it's something that we really should be careful about. Uh, you know, we live in a city full of people that are just messed up on drugs and homeless. And um, when was the last time you got out of your car and helped a homeless person? Oh, but they're just gonna do more meth. Maybe they are. But does that give you or me a, a good reason why not to do something kind or loving? You know, um, uh, it's something that, you know, we need to be careful about because some people, well, you, you know, you're at risk or you're standing next to a filthy person who has syringes and like Christians, we get all freaked out about this, but I'm pretty sure Jesus would have just went over there and touched them um, like he did with the leper. You know, Jesus, when he cleansed the lepers, oftentimes, you know, where everybody else would be running for their lives, Jesus would go and touch the leper. I love that intimate connection. Um, and uh, he was, uh, was, you know, gonna get his hands dirty, touch the leper, touch the, the ears of the deaf man. Number three, uh, we see also relatable authorization. 
Um, and that's just a way of keeping my uh, assonance going here. But, um, but uh, what's that all about? Well, notice it says in verse 33, and he spit. Why did Jesus spit? Well, there's a good question. And I'm not sure I would say for sure we know this, uh, but I'll tell you what we all suspect. And, and, and what some Bible scholars suggest is spit was deemed medicinal in ancient times. And so the idea of spitting, uh, where did he spit? Did he spit on his finger and then touch his tongue? Ew, you might say, that's gross. Well, if you're deaf and dumb or deaf and impediment of speech, uh, do you really care if you're gonna be healed? Um, so it is interesting that Jesus uses something that was thought of as medicinal. And one of the reasons I think this, Jesus made mud and spit one time to heal the blind guy's eyes. Why did he do that? Did he have to do that? Because he healed other people without doing that. Why did he use mud and spit? Again, both of those agents were considered medicinal in those days. The reason I say that is I think the Lord sort of authorizes the idea of medicine. Um, medicine is flawed. We all know that now, especially after uh, the last three years or four, four years, but um, net medicine's never been perfect. But I do think that we um, can use what is thought to be medicinal. And, and some people believe Jesus is sort of signing his name to the idea of what they thought was medicinal. Again, Jesus could have healed them without any of these things, but he did it for some reason, maybe just a relatable authorization of you know, what human uh, healing processes would be uh, thought of in those days. Number four, um, notice his direct glorification. Um, it says there in verse 34, and looking up to heaven. Why does Jesus do this? It says, looking up to heaven. That's the, the fourth part of this. Um, he could have just looked at the guy in the eyes. But looking up to heaven from whence the power really came from the Lord himself through Christ, the, you know, the God working through, you know, in the three Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity, we see that right there. But um, he looks to heaven and I think that's the source of healing. We, we need to remember that. Um, don't be afraid, by the way, when you pray to look to heaven. Look up, don't, don't bow your heads. I talked about that Sunday about traditions of man. Try that, it'll freak you out. Okay, let's pray. Uh, I know pastors that do that just to freak their congregation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, and he's like, you're looking around. Uh, did he just lose his salvation because he didn't close his eyes? No, the Bible doesn't teach that you have to close your eyes. In fact, most scriptures of prayer show, show the looking up, but we see direct glorification to the Father. Jesus always did things to give glory to the Father in heaven. Number five, we also see here a sincere compassion. There in verse 34, did you notice what it says in verse 34? He's looking up to heaven and then he sighed. See, I think every single one of these things have a reason there in the story. Why would Jesus look to heaven and then go, what makes you sigh? Um, what makes you kind of, you know, like some people sigh in disgust. Um, like, but why is Jesus sighing? If I could guess, and, and this is up to you to figure this out too, I suppose, but my take is on it, Jesus is sighing here with compassion. He, his heart is heavy. A person sighs when a person's heart is heavy. Um, and I think Jesus sees this poor man who's in need. He's about to heal him and he, and he knows the suffering that this guy's gone through and the ridicule as a deaf man. In Bible times, they would treat you badly if you're deaf and you have a speech impediment. Um, you know, it, there was no politically correct way to handle someone in that condition. Uh, in those days, they thought you were demon possessed or you know, something was really wrong with you. So as a person, you were just less. And I, I almost sense Jesus with his compassion as he sighs there in verse 34. 
But then that brings us to the sixth part of this, a bold proclamation. Um, have you ever prayed for healing and, and you felt like the Lord was gonna do a healing and then you're just like, um, but, but being really careful not to speak it too directly. I think it's interesting that Jesus says, epaphta, there in verse 34, which means be opened. Was there any sense of doubt involved with Jesus's word? Um, Jesus spoke this in total confidence, be opened. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, yeah, Brett, he's Jesus. I'm not, so I'm not gonna pray that way. I'm not gonna pray if somebody's deaf. I'm not gonna walk up to them and say, be opened, because I might look like an idiot if nothing happens. Um, but I love that Jesus makes this bold proclamation. And I do, I, I'm all for boldness, but I also include boldness with humility. We are not Jesus. So when I pray for healing, I, I do pray, Lord, you are able to do this. And, and we pray, would you please open or, or heal the cancer or, or, you know, and ask directly, Lord, heal this man. We ask and pray, but I always need to pray and so do you, but not my will, but thy will be done. Your timing, your plan, your purpose, we submit to that because you are not Jesus. But I, I still think the prayer of faith declaring this is something that's powerful and don't miss that. I, I, I'm not into the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it type theology where I'm gonna believe God and I'm gonna say it and claim it you know, and declare it, word of faith. That's, that's uh, weird, don't follow that movement. Um, Ken Copeland and those guys, Hagen and Hagen the Pagan. But um, <laughs> watch out for those guys. But, um, but at the same time, speaking things out in faith um, we see a bold proclamation, which Jesus is a model. In all these areas, how Jesus ministered to this guy. So in Mark chapter seven, notice as it says, as we close this up in verse uh, 36, um, they, Jesus charged them that they should tell no man. Did you ever notice how people do the exact opposite of what Jesus says on this stuff? If he says, don't tell anybody, they go and tell everybody. And if he says, go and tell everybody, they don't tell anybody. Um, that's just human nature. Uh, but I find it interesting. These people, she says, okay, now don't tell anybody. Blah, blah, blah. They went and told everybody. Uh, that's pretty funny. And then, and then verse 37, I love the reputation of Jesus here. There's several things that people would say, oh man, they marveled at his gracious words, you know, the stuff like that. But this is one of those statements. They said, man, Jesus does everything well. Um, I think that that's a good word for us as Christians. You know, sometimes I think we Christians, we do things shabbily. I remember when I was doing a wedding at a church in another town and I went into the church and I could tell this was a smaller church. They were probably financially struggling. Um, but the, the disrepair of the church was shocking. There was literally chunks of sheetrock kind of falling down and walls that were sort of half painted, um, carpet, you know, that was, coming up in the corner and it was just kind of this, this church that was just totally dilapidated. And, um, and the reason I, I remember thinking this, I thought, what a shame because, you know, if there's five people in this congregation, they should have a cleanup weekend. Like for nothing, for nothing, you could at least tack down the carpet and, you know, straighten up the sheetrock and just, just a little bit of care and concern you know, now some people might say, well, Pastor Brett, you guys at Athe Creek, you know, you guys are planting flowers out on the side of the road. Um, and people go, why are you spending money on flowers when they're starving people? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, we like the way flowers look. Number two, um, the county is making us do that. It holds the, it holds the hillside together. And uh, it's part of the agreement we had to build this building is to plant hypericum. It can't be, you know, periwinkle or petunias. It's gotta be hypericum. And we gotta plant that and water it. And, like, it's funny when people get all critical about Athey Creek, but at the same time, even if that wasn't a requirement from the county, one of the things that I, I think, I, I 
think churches should do is, is do what Jesus did. Hopefully, you know, I, I know that we're not perfect here at 8th Greek for, by any stretch of the imagination, but if people are wondering, you know, why did you guys make your warehouse look better with, with stone or with, you know, carpet? Well, we could have a dump in here and we could just, you know, be letting it fall apart, but that's not really, Jesus did everything orderly and he did things well. And I think that's something we all really should try to, try to do as Christians, not just as a church, but also personally, uh, individually. Um, Colossians 3.23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. And that's what we all should be doing. Jesus is the great example of that. He doeth all things well. Uh, good stuff. Well, chapter eight next week, Lord willing, and we'll get into some of the next things that are coming down the pike. Lord, how thankful we are. What a great uh, evening to be able to study this chapter. And I pray that we would minister even as you ministered. Show us, Lord, what it means to be a people that um, do things well. I pray we would rep represent you well. Um, help us not to be afraid to get our hands dirty and to be personal and touch people, care about them. Lord, I pray you'd raise up more and more people who would give their attention and care and love to uh, those that are hurting. Uh, make us more like your son, we pray. Bless these people who are here, also online watching. I just pray you'd warm our hearts as we spent time looking to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.